Amen. Let us turn our confessional reading this evening, Lord's Day 28, page 230, in the forms and prayers. I will, I'll, I'll read the question and answers uh, tonight. They're all, we could probably stay together for the, for the first one, maybe for the second one, maybe for the third one, but uh, one of the longer Lord's Days. And so other than our regular responsive reading, I'll, I'll take these lengthy question and answers and I'll read both the question and the answer, beginning uh, with question 75 on page 230. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has reminded, has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body and so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
That is the confession we hold in common, including uh, some direct quotations from the very word of God as we quite often have in the confessions. Let us turn now to that word, 1 John, page 1,303. The Bible's under the seats. Let us hear the word of God. 1 John 3, beginning at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So far, the reading of the holy word of God. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, this text is not directly on the Lord's Supper, but it is included in the texts referenced in Lord's Day 28 because the Lord's Supper and the unity of the church are intimately related and the Lord's Supper and the assurance of the faith are intimately related and 1 John says much to us and uh, that's certainly true in these verses in this text about the unity of the church and about the assurance of the faith. Consider, brothers and sisters, the very image of the bread and the wine. We do not take the Lord's Supper individually with individual grains. We take the Lord's Supper together, eating a loaf that has many grains all united together. We do not take grapes individually. We take the wine, which is many grapes pressed together, together. And then we can look at key texts on the Lord's Supper, such as 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, quoted at the end of question answer 77. Surely there is a participation in the body 
of Christ. And we see this when we partake of the one bread together. And so, brothers and sisters, we come to this text and we come to the letter of 1 John saying so much about the unity of the church and about the assurance of the faith and in this way being closely related to the Lord's Supper, which is a great means of building us up in these things. And we come to this text with this theme tonight. Very short theme tonight. Be assured together in the faith. Be assured together in the faith. Assured in various circumstances. Assured in eternal truth. Assured in lawful unity. Brothers and sisters, where does our text begin? Our text begins with the ultimate demonstration of love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And this was a purposeful, intentional, willing laying down of Christ's life. And that's why it is a demonstration of love. It is purposeful. That's why it is meaningful. Brothers and sisters, there was a helpful illustration of this because I think that's something that's easy for us to to rush past in uh, J. Denny's book, The Death of Christ. And we're just going to change that illustration a little bit. And it's an illustration to help us think about the difference between a purposeful giving up of life and a not purposeful giving up of life. And so changing J. Denny's illustration just a little bit, let's take soldiers that are fighting together in a just cause of war and they are sitting on the front lines and there is no gunfire going on at the moment. And one of the soldiers looks at his brothers and he picks up a grenade and he says, I am going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to take my own grenade and I am going to take my own life just to show you, to demonstrate how much I love you. Now that is not a demonstration of love. And it would not be received as such. What do the fellow brothers in arms say? They say, no, this is, this is without purpose. What are you doing? We know that it is not right. Because it is not a true act of love. Because it is not a purposeful demonstration of anything. Now this stands in direct contrast to the friend who sees the enemy grenade rolling and near his friends and about to go off and he runs and he jumps and he gives his life for his friends. And there is the same kind of end but with such a different purpose and one we we rightly cringe at And the other, we say, here is a sacrifice of love. And we recognize it as such, and we call it as such. And now we take this, brothers and sisters, and we go to the cross. Why is the cross the ultimate demonstration of love? 
because it was a purposeful death. It was the innocent one dying for not just a few friends, but for every single one who has ever trusted in him. It was the death of universal purpose in as far as reaching around the globe. It was the death of eternal purpose in that he did not just save friends to live a little longer on this cursed earth, but that he saved us from the second death. He saved us from eternal death. He saved us from the eternal punishment of sins that we deserve. There is the demonstration of love. There is the purpose-filled death that saves everyone who believes in Him. It is not just an innocent man hanging upon a cross for a crime that he didn't commit. It is the innocent man dying purposefully on the cross to save sinners. By this, we know love. That He laid down His life for us. And then John continues, speaking in the context of the church, of the brethren, of the bride of Christ for whom Jesus died, he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. As Jesus said in John 15:13, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. And praise the Lord for the death of faithful martyrs. There is, it's nothing like the sense of Christ's death, but there is a sense in which when Christians die as faithful martyrs with a faithful witness of, of God's love and of their faith in God, there's a certain sense in which a martyr is dying for the whole church and for the witness of the whole church. Praise the Lord for those who have take words from Hebrews 11, which is about the great cloud of witnesses and, and leads to which verses? These verses at the end of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, uh, 36 to uh, 38. Praise the Lord for those who others, verse 36, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. It is, of course, nothing like the directly applicable and personal death of Jesus Christ for sinners, but it is a death for the sake of the whole church in one sense is for the witness of the church. They are part of the great cloud of witnesses. And the blood of the martyrs 
calls out. Now just for a moment, let's consider this, that for things such as the way they take communion, brothers and sisters have been willing to be put to death. And then not the giving up of their life always, but all kinds of other circumstances as well have surrounded the taking of communion uh, for the brothers and sisters throughout the centuries and throughout the world. And to this day, believers take communion in secret together because they face the threat of imprisonment or worse. And then there are even accounts of believers having the elements of communion smuggled into prison and taking communion together in prison. And there are all kinds of various circumstances that communion has been taken in. But then we step back and we say it's true that many believers are not in a situation where they are called to give up their life as a martyr or to defend the life of a fellow believer. And it is true that many believers have not had to take communion in such situations. Indeed, we have been blessed to live in a land of religious freedom where we can take communion openly and publicly together without any fear of imprisonment or something worse. And John knows this. And so John moves from laying down your life to the brothers to where does he go from there? From the end of verse 16 He begins to speak about the need for generosity in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is moving from the greater to the lesser. You must lay down your life for the brothers. You must open your heart. And even particularly, he's speaking of financial generosity here. One who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. But then John continues to, to move down to, to the what we might call day by day. He just speaks of love generally. Verse 18, little, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Lay down your life. Have an open heart of generosity. Love. He has worked from that which Many believers, thankfully, are not called to to the everyday acts of love and kindness that we are called to for our fellow believers. And so we ask, is our heart open to those around us? And do we love the brothers? Do we rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, pray for one another, speak to one another, know one another? Yes, we should even be willing to lay down our life for the brethren, for the church, for the witness of the church. But we are called to all kinds of everyday acts of love, and that is something every believer is called to. Love being essential in all of this, from week to week, from day to day, from year to year. Let us learn Uh, to begin with the small acts of love that we are called to. And let us be ready for great sacrifices. Think about how different our nation looks now from what it looked like 40 years ago. 
what will the next 40 years bring? We do not know. We do not know. Lord willing, we will continue to have measures of freedom, but increasing paganization, increasing hostility, we do not know. We do not know what it will mean to be holding to the truth of the Word of God as true professors. Well, that word truth, it takes us to our second point. For we are called to love one another in truth. We are to be those who know the truth. God has spoken to us. Satan is the father of lies. Those lies take much different shapes from one place to another. Uh, For those who are here on Christmas morning, we spoke a little bit about uh, a a tribe that had great revival and and, uh, and growth over the last 70 years, our brothers and sisters among the Benimereans. What is, what is a kind of lie that the Benimereans had, had from the father of lies, the devil, and, and that the Holy Spirit had to break down? Well, they have lies like, like the lie of, of ancestor worship, so common from so many tribes around the world. And what are the kinds of lies that, that we face? We Brothers and sisters, many of you have heard me say this before. We do not face lies of, of overly connectedness that ancestors continue to exist in some positive form and we must worship them or, or some kind of other collective lie. We, we live in an age and in a place where the father of lies works by so many individualizing lies. We live facing all these lies of essentially individual worship But all of these are part of the broad way with its many different directions that all lead to destruction. How do we combat the lies of Satan in this battle zone? Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And then uh, it continues and speaks about uh, reassure our conscience before God uh, who knows Everything who's greater than our heart. And, and when our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And verses 19 and 20 and 21. And then how do we, how do we pull these things together? What is, the, what is the reassurance here? Because that is the overarching theme right here and all through the book of 1 John is assurance. So how do these verses relate to assurance? And brothers and sisters, I think it's helpful to think about uh, four ways that we should think about our conscience and know what our conscience does. I think this helps us read verses 19 and 20 and 21. And I'm I'm borrowing heavily from a couple of different ministers and kind of combining their lists together and, and rewording them. Four four things to think about with our with our heart, with our conscience. That's how, how the word heart is being used here. And uh, conscience is not the easiest word to define. Maybe our younger members can ask their parents to help them. What is, what is a conscience? What does that mean? Maybe they, our younger members can ask their parents that on the way home. Uh, but if we work toward a simple definition, our conscience is it's our heart, it's our mind telling us something is right or wrong. So how, what are four things that we should think about with our heart, with our conscience? First, we should instruct our conscience. If our conscience is telling us what's right and wrong, it still needs to be instructed. 
It is true, the apostle says in Romans 2, that the law of God is written on the heart of man. It is also true, as the prophet says in Jeremiah 17, that the heart is desperately wicked. So what does that mean? We have a conscience telling us right and wrong, but that conscience needs to be instructed. Sometimes our conscience is not sharp enough. Sometimes our conscience, because the weak of the flesh, the weakness of the flesh takes so many different forms, sometimes our conscience is too sharp. And we are condemning ourselves and, and thinking we're guilty of, of something that we shouldn't be. We need to instruct our conscience by the word of God. The law of God is written on the heart of man, but the heart of man is desperately wicked. Let us grow in understanding so that we will call evil what is evil and call good what is good. Second, we should heed our conscience. There are times when we know what is right and what is wrong. When we know what our evil desires are pulling us toward, we know it is wrong. Why would we grab the bait when we know that the trap is set and that the trap is sharp? Let's heed our conscience. Third, we must know that God is greater than than our conscience. This is part of what verse 20 is speaking to. God is greater than our heart and God knows all things. When we are struggling with right and wrong, with when we are struggling with how we are right and wrong, well, the final word is never with our own heart. The final word is with God, the judge of all things. And then number three is closely related to number four. Fourth, we must know that God can cleanse our guilty conscience. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Because our first problem is that our conscience is not sharp enough. And the reality is we all have a guilty conscience. And Isaiah saw this in a striking way when he was brought into heaven in a vision. What does he say when in a vision he is brought before the throne of God and the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts? Isaiah says in Isaiah 6 verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. But God can cleanse a guilty conscience. 
Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. We are guilty. But remember, there is a purposeful death that atones for sins. And so standing there and saying, woe is me, is not the last word. When we bow before God, when we worship God, when we trust in God, our guilty conscience is cleansed. Woe is me, I am undone, but I do not stand here on my own strength. I stand here in the strength of the one who demonstrated purposefully love and died for me. And he is innocent. Christ is innocent. And God can cleanse a guilty conscience. And I do not stand with all the stains of my heart and mind and hands and feet, I stand in His name. God can cleanse a guilty conscience. And God does cleanse the guilty conscience. You say, woe is me. You say, how can I stand? Maybe you say, I know how dirty my thoughts never revealed to other people are. Here I stand. Woe is me. I am undone. God knows you better than you know yourself. And God sent His Son to die for sinners. God is greater than your conscience. God knows everything. And God saves sinners. J.I. Packer once spoke about the immediate wonder of this. Quote, There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Come, sinners, and be cleansed and be assured God knows who you are. And Jesus dies for you knowing who you are. Do you hear the beauty? Do you hear the assurance of these words? Assured, brothers and sisters, in lawful uh, unity. We have already made some reference to the law of God. Certainly the law and truth are closely tied together. 
Now we look at verse 23, brothers and sisters, and what is it? It is essentially the two great commandments. The two great commandments. The first and the greatest is this. You shall love the Lord your God. And the second is you shall love your neighbor. You shall love one another. Verse 23 is basically the two great commandments restated. Except instead of love the Lord your God, here the first commandment is stated in terms of believing. Believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. A fellow uh, minister once illustrated the whole book of 1 John something like this. That John's purpose throughout is, is assurance. It's assurance of doubting hearts. And the whole book of John is, is like a pool of assurance. And John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's like he's walking around the pool with three kinds of stones. He has truth stones, he has obedience to the law stones, and he has love stones. And John just keeps walking in and, and throwing those stones in different shapes and different angles into that same pool. And he keeps using those things to bring us to to assurance. But then we say, wait, how does all of this tie together? Because none of us are perfectly uh, true and obedient and loving. So how does all this tie together? It all ties together believing in Jesus Christ. It all ties together coming back to His perfect love. It all ties together in His accomplishment of salvation. And it all ties together in the end of verse 24, the Spirit whom He has given us. Yes, we are stumbling along, but by grace we desire to be on the narrow way. And so we can speak in that sense about our obedience as well. And that, by the Spirit, is part of our assurance. I am stumbling along. But I want the narrow way. That is my purpose. I want to be obedient to God. That is the Spirit's work in us. I am, I am struggling in all kinds of ways, but the Spirit's testimony in me brings me to His Word, and I love His Word, and I love that Christ is the perfect one. I love that He cleanses me. So, brothers and sisters, we, we are assured believing in Christ by the Spirit whom He has given us. We are assured as we then stumble along this narrow way, as we love God's truth, and as we admire God's love for us, seeking to be His loving servants. There is, uh, there is an emphasis upon assurance in the confessions. Because again, the, the, the part of the very purpose of the sacraments given to us is so that we are assured not just by the hearing, which is central for God's Word and for God's church, but also in all five senses. We are, we are assured also by these signs and seals. Look at the question for 75. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you? And then 75 and 76 and 77, they're, they're all tied together. 
because question 75, after speaking about this, then it, then it speaks about the promises. With this command come these promises. And then those promises are tied to surety. As surely as I see, so surely his body. As surely as I receive and taste, so surely he nourishes. And it's all, it's all tied together, this language of surety and assurance. And then coming back to the to the promise which assures me, and then question answer seventy seven. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh me with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? Where does where does that promise, where does that assurance come from? It goes back to the language of Christ Himself in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, hear the word and hearing and believing be assured and see and and taste and feel the sacraments the seals that he has given to us and be assured we are sinners saved by his sacrifice god is greater god knows everything about us and god saves sinners. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, we give thanks.